Hello and welcome to Big Earth Energy. I'm your host, Dwayne Fields, and our mission here is to discuss all things sustainable thinking and action. It's important, it's complicated, and we can all learn more about what's actually going on, and more importantly, why. And to give you some information as to who I am, I'm a presenter, an explorer, and I've been fortunate enough to have led many carbon neutral expeditions through some of the world's most inhospitable places. I also co-founded the We Too Foundation, a charity focused on encouraging young people from deprived areas to learn more about sustainable living and general climate literacy. We'll be speaking with experts from different fields of sustainable thinking and action to hear more about the work they're doing, why they're doing it, and what we could be doing to up our own environmental game. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. The theme of this episode is creating a nature positive world. And joining us to explore this idea is Harris Kareem, founder of The Nature Impact. Harris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. When I first heard about you, I did a little bit of searching, but I want you to tell everyone that's listening a little bit about the Nature Impact and what you guys do. We at the Nature Impact essentially are looking to create a nature-positive world. What does this mean? Essentially, a nature-positive world is one where we're moving away from actively destroying it to replenishing and revitalizing it. That's essentially our mission. And the way we're, that we are doing that is by empowering corporates to track and reduce their impact on nature. Break it down a little bit more for me. What does a nature positive world mean to the guy that's sat watching TV or the lady that's on the train right now? When you're commuting every day, you're going out into nature, the birds and the bees, you know, the urban jungle, that's all part of the natural environment that we live in. And so really what we've seen over the last few decades is we've seen this natural environment start to degrade just by virtue of the fact that we've built more buildings, we have thought about our shopping centers and our parks, but we really need to think about how do we move away from destroying it to create more and more excess and really living within our means and growing sustainably, but also thinking about how nature is incorporated into our buildings. So you might have gone into Shepherd's Bush and seen how some of the parks are interwoven with our shopping centers and our ways of you know relaxing and revitalizing and there's so many benefits of being out into nature the latest research shows that stress levels go down by 30 percent just by virtue of taking a walk out into the fields and so really we need to be promoting that and promoting the health of the ecosystem you're preaching to converted when you're talking to me because i completely believe this stuff i love it as a matter of fact and there's so many studies that found that if you're in an open natural space and you're learning you retain more when you're out there, you tend to be healthier because you're more active if you spend time outdoors. Stress levels, like you said, drop. And who doesn't want to climb and get a little bit dirty and create a bit of havoc in the house when they get back home? So <laughs> you're going to be generally happier, aren't you? Exactly. And I think the key thing is, is we're not telling people, the person who sat us home, to not look to build, right? Humans have this natural inclination to build, get creative, right? But we need to think about how do we do that in a sustainable way? And how do we incorporate the natural environment in what we're looking to build? That's all we're asking for. We're not looking to stop building. We're looking to build with nature as part of our thought process. So I know why I love the outdoors. 
I was born in a small corner of Jamaica. It was a rural area. My first environment was the woodlands and the fields and forests near my house. Why are you so interested in this business? Why did you start it? So I came from Afghanistan, uh, moved over when I was one years old, and my parents always spoke about the natural environment of Afghanistan, the mountainous regions, similar to what you said about Jamaica, right? There's this sort of natural element that you just want to explore, but I can't go back to that land, just, you know, the political environment there. But um, what I'm really passionate about is really bringing that and protecting the nature that we had in Afghanistan and how can we bring that to everywhere in the planet. And so I'm deeply passionate about my parents being able to see natural environment, but also my kids. If I start to think about kids and them growing up, I don't want them to grow up in a place where there are no glaciers, for example, or there are no species that because there's 40,000 endangered species right now, and if all those degrade, then they'll never see sloths and penguins and, and snow foxes, right? And I want them to be able to have the opportunity to see those sorts of things. Who doesn't love a sloth, right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so question do you spend a lot of time in the outdoors at the moment i try to you try to yeah have you ever noticed that we are very very connected to nature even though we think we're not and i'll give you an example if there were birds singing we feel calm we are in tune with the birds song and the sounds they're making we are so part of nature and it's hard to explain how we just departed from it so quickly yeah I love that story. What's really interesting is there are startups right now that are looking at bioacoustics. Yeah. And so what this means is putting microphones out into forests and rainforests through analyzing the data and the sound data, you can start to understand how nature is improving or degrading. So if there are fewer songbirds, when you analyze those sound files, then you know actually nature is starting to degrade. And so you need to start to improve it. That's such an awesome thing to look at. I mean, I always thought you went out there with a clipboard and just, you know, some binoculars and yeah. just ticked off bird, bird species watching. and yeah. bird watching. <laughs> I found out recently a Twitcher and a bird watcher are two different things. What's a Twitcher? So a Twitcher is somebody who waits for a particularly rare species to pop up and they're on these networks and someone says, I don't know, there's a bald eagle in Chesham somewhere. Mm. They'll all rush to Chesham and try and get a picture or try and get a look at it. Whereas a bird watch will go out and see what and just find what they find. Oh, fascinating. I know, I know. Yeah. There's been lots of really cool things with birds. I don't know if you know about the red kites that were released, I think, towards the end of the 90s or in the 90s. They were completely wiped out in Britain. They released a few pairs. I think it was like 28 pairs. And now you can find them as far as Kent and all the way up to as far as, you know, the borders. There is an interesting conversation to be had about reintegration of nature because, you know, some of those reasons of why particular species died out is through human activity. But some of them might have just been natural causes. And so if you try to replenish nature in inorganic way and reintroduce them to the wild, actually you might be doing those species a disservice because actually the dodo bird just couldn't survive right now. Pandas right now shouldn't be a thing because, you know, they're slow, challenging in terms of finding their bamboo, but we're helping to keep them alive by feeding them the bamboo as well. So that's interesting as well. It's a bad thing that we're keeping some species on life support almost. Mm, I don't know if it's a bad thing. I do think there are considerations that we right. need to think about to make sure all those impacts, right? If you keep those species alive, what are the species that are dying out because that's been alive? Are we interfering in a natural ecosystem of death and birth? 
gosh, that's such, you can go down a real rabbit hole with this one. Could yeah, you? Definitely. I mean, what species should we reintegrate? Like you said, or what species we should wipe out because they're invasive. Yes. And at what point does an invasive species become native species? If I said climate literacy to you, Harris, what does that mean? Climate literacy to me is really about understanding what climate change is and the impacts that it has on everyday life. There's a wealth of literature out there, but it's really around understanding you are an agent of change. You have the power to make a difference. And so by reading and understanding the impacts of climate change, then you can take action. If our listeners are out there thinking, gosh, I really want to do something, but I don't know how to live more sustainably. I don't know where to start. What advice would you give them? That's a great question. So what I, I would say is take the old adage of what gets measured gets managed. And so first you need to really understand and measure your carbon footprint. So companies like Twig and other providers really help you understand across your finances, where are you really making the biggest carbon footprint and then prioritizing those. So for example, if you use a lot of fast fashion providers, you know, you might think about actually you don't need to buy that new item for going out that weekend. You can actually reuse an old item or go to a vintage store and you breathe new life into a new item of clothing and you wear it in a different way. Those small little micro adjustments will really help you make a difference. I'm pleased to say that I wear my clothes to absolute destruction. I still make do and mend is something I heard when I was- Very cool. Yeah, I try to anyway. That's one of the little things I do. What about the kind of person that would say, well, actually, it's a big problem. It's too big for me. They negate their responsibilities around sustainable living and action. What do we say to those people? So to that person is absolutely right. Most carbon emissions are emitted by corporations and oil and gas companies. So delegating responsibility to those corporates is fair enough. But what I would say is you can make a difference by challenging those corporates and potentially not buying from those corporates as well. And putting your money where your mouth is. So if, for example, you have a, a diesel car and rather than buying a new one, uh, you buy electric. And so you then really need to go to a Shell or BP if you think they're making the biggest impact. And you go, you know, Tesla, who's obviously looking to provide green renewable energy to fuel your car. So there are sorts of adjustments that you can make, but they're predicated on big decisions that you make in your life. And you need to really think about those big decisions and how you can make them in a more green and eco-friendly way. Is there a particular industry, business, company even that you think is doing a particularly bad job at managing their carbon and becoming more neutral? I think there are industries that are all trying to do the right thing, but the regulatory landscape is not clear. And that's what we really need. We really need to understand what the rules of the game are. And some industries like the oil and gas industry, the regulatory framework is becoming clearer. But some others, like the fisheries industries, is quite new. And just last week, we had the historic Fisheries Act that we agreed that took over 10 years to get done. And now we have a framework of how to fish responsibly. And so those are the things that we need. We need governments and global governments to really think about, okay, what are the regulations? And then make sure that each industry knows how to play within those regulations. Should we name and shame people who aren't performing? I only say that because... You know, you've always got that carrot, you've always got that stick and you, you give people a lot of room to wriggle and they'll wriggle and wriggle and wriggle so they don't have to act. Should we name them? Should we shame them? Just a little bit. <laughs> I feel bad for naming and shaming because I know a lot of people in, in many of these companies and they're all trying to do the right thing. Yeah. The issue is there's this lack of clarity of what they can do. And the reason why is because the regulation is not clear. 
So for me personally, nature legislation needs to be here. Like we should have already implemented how to protect our natural environments and what to do. And that will help unfreeze corporations from taking the right decision. Absolutely, they should be doing more. But I think the government also has a role to play. And if we can marry those two up, then these corporates will take action quicker. So let me play devil's advocate just for a second here. We've got 14 national parks here in the UK. Where's the responsibility on them to educate and support and encourage young people out there? We talk a lot about government regulations and them bringing things in. Sometimes I feel like, are we just laying too much at their feet? That's a good point. We can do more personally. Um, and there's so many amazing, you know, wildlife conservation groups out there, not-for-profits that are really trying to take action because of the gaps that the government is unable to fill. And yeah. I think those are those are wonderful initiatives. You know, the story that you mentioned about replenishing and reintegrating wildlife, that's amazing. And I think we should continue to do that. But I think enough is being done by people. We need to challenge our governments and our local councils. So are those councils, are they looking to sell off those national parks to build more buildings? You know, we really need to understand and stand up against that sort of thing, or at least understand why we need more space. Is it because of, you need to bring the social and community context into this? Like, do we need space? What does that look like? How do we bring nature into it as well? And so I agree, you know, playing devil's advocate, we should be doing more, not just laying the feet of government. But I do believe, you know, all the fantastic work and awareness building of Wildlife Conservation Group has been amazing. And we just need more volunteers yeah. to help that. That's the war cry, isn't it? It's always more volunteers. We need more funding as well. Oftentimes you hear that. We've only built on about two or three percent of the UK and the rest of it is farmland and golf courses and all that kind of stuff. Why should we be worried about building on 97 percent of land that still exists? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that the reason why is because nature is quite delicate and the wrong move, like let's say you build on this sort of really rare type of limestone and that limestone actually houses, you know, really key biodiversity that is used as a way of, you know, feeding other bigger, larger mammals. And so you think, actually, let's just build on this limestone, destroy it and replenish it. Buildings, but actually that small little difference could make a uh, butterfly effect of destroying other parts of the ecosystem. And before you know it, then you've destroyed more of the ecosystem. We've seen that in many other countries, like you've mentioned Jamaica, you know, in Nepal, for example, their natural forests were degrading massively. And because of local laws that they changed that you need to protect this natural environment, we've seen over the last 20 years, it's actually replenished or we've yielded all the benefits like that we've mentioned around, you know, stress levels going down, building community, having a place for kids to, to play around and, have, and, and explore nature. That's what we need to protect. And we need to make sure that we protect that 97% because you never know if we break down and turn it to 90%, it builds on top of each other, like climate change, for example, right? The more carbon that we emit, we're reaching tipping points. And as we go over these tipping points, then it becomes actively degrading and accelerating that degradation. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. If I asked you to put together an action plan, 
a sustainable action plan and I gave you a billion pounds to do it, what would your plan look like? My plan would look like go back and ask for more money. <laughs> go back, a billion isn't enough? <laughs> a billion is not enough. Vietnam is spending $16 billion just on their energy transition plan. We need to ask for more funding of more financial companies need to be apportioning more of their finances to protecting nature, but also social and environmental and carbon energy transitions as well. So a billion pounds, I would say we should invest that in making the regulatory landscape clearer for companies to unfreeze and make sure that corporates can take action quicker. Is there enough investment coming into the sector? I don't think so, personally. I think we need to do more. I also think we need to overlay this with Right now, there's a cost of living crisis, right? And so we really need to understand that impact as well. Yeah, because everyone's struggling to pay their bills, that pushes climate action and sustainability and all these challenges that we face as a, as a macro pushes it down the list, doesn't it? It does. The good thing is we can make sure it never happens again. So it happened right now is because we are so dependent on natural gas coming from Europe. What if we had energy independence where actually we were using and building solar and wind farms on site and we would never need to use and buy gas from any other country? We would never have an energy crisis like this. So you can take strategic actions by investing more in solar and wind farms, but also think about the protecting consumers and people who think about their natural gas bills today. Harris, I like you. Let's say I made you prime minister. What would your sustainable living action plan look like? I think the main thing that we need to do as a society is building awareness and understanding of what does climate change really mean and the impact for us. So I would invest a portion of capital on helping build that awareness across everyone and the actions that we can take as people. I also think we should also invest a lot more in renewables to build solar, wind farms and actively decarbonize our grid. The more that we can do that, that means that every time you plug in your hairdryer, your TV, your computers, those sorts of items, they're all being powered by gas and coal. And so the more we can decarbonize that grid, the more that we can build you know, a better future for us. Imagine you had a genie in a bottle and you can make three wishes, click your finger and solve some problems. What would you wish for? I would say from a personal perspective, because nature is so important, yeah. getting nature legislation ready, clear, global frameworks, what specific piece of legislation would you want in place that could fix half the problems that you've come across? So there are two frameworks that are currently in discussion. There's one called the Science-Based Targets Initiative for Nature, and the other one is called the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Okay, that's a mouthful, and it can scare a lot of people off. It can. Yeah. Thankfully, there are more mouthfuls than just traditional legislation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at least the words of nature uh, and biodiversity will make a more positive framing of legislation because nobody really likes that. But corporates, you know, being accountable and reporting against that nature and providing transparency. So if you realize that your fashion company where you bought your coats from, the cotton where that comes from that is built for that, what if the farmers are using synthetic fertilizers what if they're using fresh water rather than rain-fed water? There are all these considerations that you need to think about and you really want to understand what is the impact of everything that you're putting onto your clothes. I'm putting myself in the, the mind of one of the listeners here and I'm thinking, that's a big thing to take on, man. I don't want to think about where the water came from for my cotton in my clothes. I don't want to think, I just want to have somebody else 
make sure it's green, make sure it's a good source, make sure it's renewable, make sure it's, it's responsibly sourced. Why would I want to take that on? Yeah, great question. You shouldn't take that on. You should be challenging your government to make sure that they incorporate the legislation, the ESG and sustainability legislation. So then you don't need to think about that. You know that whenever you plug in your hairdryer, it's going to be green energy that powers it. You know that when you buy your clothes, it's all no modern slavery using sustainable materials and it's transported in a green way. You still have two wishes left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a pretty big wish. I would say the other wishes would be energy independence. If I could click my fingers and that happened, that would be incredible, I think. That will solve the energy crisis that we have right now and really make energy really cheap. Can you imagine if energy was really cheap and you didn't have to think about the cost of plugging everything in? Imagine all the wonderful things that we could create by having limitless energy and all the innovations. And if you imagine that that kid who's 15 years old in London and wants to, you know, build something, a computer rig, for example, or build their own car or the new version of something that I can't even think about, if they didn't have to think about the cost of energy of providing that all the tools, all those tools cost an amount because it takes so much energy to create those items. And so you see everything will start to come down. I've never thought of how the price of energy could impact creativity. So final wish. I think my final wish is people just having belief capital that they can make a difference. I think a lot of people just don't want to make a difference because they don't think they can, but you can make a difference. I have a little mini protest of my own. Okay. Whenever I go to a supermarket and I see bananas in plastic bags, I think to myself, the banana already comes wrapped. Why would you put it in a plastic bag and put a label on it? I will not buy a banana in a plastic bag. It just makes no sense to me. That's my little protest. I'm going to make it a nationwide. <laughs> I'm going to do. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The amount of plastic packaging out there, some of it's so superfluous that I don't understand. It's just because we can. On a scale of one to 10, where does your carbon guilt sit on how you live your day-to-day -day life? It's a good question. So I can't drive and it's because I never learned to drive and I should really learn to drive, but I've just been waiting for autonomous cars, really. Well, then, <laughs> then you're not driving then, they're driving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, hopefully powered by limitless energy. Limitless agree, energy, yeah. green. So my carbon gear, I would say, probably lands at four. I enjoy meat a lot. Uh, I love a good steak. I also enjoy holidays as well and I'm really bad for that. But what I would say is, thankfully, the investments in sustainable aviation fuel will help me make flying more guilt-free. And now with the advent of lab-grown meat, you know, potentially I will be guilt-free in terms of eating meat as well. What's the most shameful driver in your personal, like, day-to-day -day life in regards to your carbon footprint? So when I use an app uh, to help me understand my carbon footprint, uh, I realized the biggest driver was my holidays. Um, because I had been on a lot of holidays and business travel as well. So really, I need to do a lot more around that. And there's a lot of carbon offsetting programs right now yeah. where you can offset those. But I think there are a lot of challenges in terms of the transparency of carbon offset programs. So I don't know if there's anything I could specifically do, but I really enjoy going to the Caribbean, for example. And Everyone loves the Caribbean. And having a pina colada <laughs> yeah, on the beach. So yeah, that is shameful. But I'm hopefully with sustainable aviation fuel, it can reduce my kilt down. I took a group of young people along with my teammate to Antarctica. I did a calculation about how much carbon was produced as a result of this trip. 
as a group, it was something like 780 tons of carbon. But we calculated how many trees and different actions we could take to offset that. And we kept it all in-house. But there's a lot of greenwashing going on, isn't there? Yes. Where you'd pay to offset your carbon and it goes somewhere else that you didn't think it would end up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just today, I received the Guardian alert where one of the biggest carbon offset verifiers, uh, so this is a company that verifies that projects are actually offsetting the carbon that you have paid for. There's a lack of transparency in their methodology. And so really, we need to do more as an industry in the carbon offsetting space on how we provide that transparency and make sure there's agreement on the methodology of that. So it's amazing that you did that trip. I don't want to shame people because I think that's an incredible thing that you did, right? You explored nature. That's really what it is. And you opened people's minds on the importance of it. And actually those carbon footprint, I would say actually the benefits that it's going to yield of getting more people interested on protecting these areas because they're not going to be there forever, right? Well, actually, that's the thing. We want them to be there forever. And if we don't get the buy-in of the next generation, many of these young people, they, you know, when you say Antarctica, it's a myth. It's a place they've seen on TV. It doesn't really exist. When you bring some of them down there and, you know, they're part of that cohort, they go back and they tell their peers, it's real. I've seen this. This is what it looks like. This is what it felt like. It then becomes real in those minds as well. So it's almost a, a ripple effect. A thousand percent. I would never want to stop us from doing that and promoting and showing people of what's there so they can talk back at it and we need to protect it. Those people become the agents of change, right? Of the next generation and be people who will be sitting in this chair in 20, 20 years talking about, we need to do even more to protect the poles. Absolutely, but equally saying, we're glad that this generation took action as well. Where do you try and have the most positive impact now on your day-to-day -day carbon footprint? I would say uh, I'm a pretty minimal person. Uh, generally, I don't buy a lot of clothes. I don't drive either. I don't go outside the house other than walks and nature walks. Um, Do you take other people with you when you go? My wife, mostly. And we just talk about, you know, life uh, in general, you know, what we watched on Netflix the night before. Do you find that when you're out in a natural space, there's always a moment where, you know, especially when I take young people out the very first time, there's always this moment where they freeze and they realize, hold on, there's no buses. The ambient noise is gone. There's no sirens and, and that facade drops. They don't need to be tough and strong and look bold and be brave and the anxieties drop away. Did you find that when you first started to explore nature as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where I came up with the idea of the nature impact and also all the ideas that I've had since in terms of the business have all come from just sitting in nature because not just because that's what the business is, but also it just allows me to think more openly, expansively and think about different ways of solving the pain points that I'm looking to solve for corporations. Harris, let's say we were hosting a party and we've invited a hundred guests. We've got room for one more person. And I've got two names on a piece of it. I've got Greta Thunberg and I've got Donald Trump. Which one are we inviting, man? Controversial answer potentially, but I would say Trump is Trump? the one what? I would invite. I think preaching to the converted is great, but I think we really need to talk and have different perspectives in the conversation. And I think there's a reason why Trump and his followers believe a certain opinion around climate change. There's obviously a kernel of something. And you really want to understand that and then be able to combat that point of, hey, maybe Trump thinks like this because of the fact that he sees the weather change every day and it's getting warmer and he enjoys it, right? And that's fair enough. And then what I would say to that in response is because of the fact of climate change and we're mining so much carbon, 
you're changing the natural ecosystems of our oceans and our precious ecosystems, and that's making the climate warmer. And what does it look like in 100 years where you can't even go outside because you're going to be burnt to a crisp? You won't be able to commute to your offices or mansions, and you won't be able to go outside, and your kids won't be able to go outside. What does that look like? I'd argue we don't have to wait 100 years. I'll take you back to last summer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. It was hot. The train tracks were buckling. Yes. There were parks and grasslands on fire. In places that there hasn't been fire before. We had no air conditioning at home. Yeah. I was sweating at home, just sitting there. And I, I couldn't go outside because I still had to do work. Imagine it was the same for everyone else as yeah. well. And we don't have natural air conditioning like the States, right? The US have air conditioning as a hygiene factor. They have it everywhere. We don't have that because historically our buildings have been built in a way to retain heat. And so now with more heat waves we've, we've never had before at the frequency that we're having it, we're now having to think about how do we rethink buildings and have them as more places to live where they actually not just retain heat in the winter, but a release heat in the summer. And we haven't really thought about that. And that's going to be a massive challenge in terms of retrofitting our homes. Do you have any recommendations for any resources that anyone listening from home can check out books, podcasts, websites? It could be anything at all that you call on. Yeah, I would recommend the natural books, uh, which is basically going outside for nature walks. Learn on the hoof. Yeah, learn on by, you know, looking through the plants, the fauna and the flora and the beauty of, of that. You know, I think that will be enough research on why it's important. But if you had to stay at home or commute and, and look through stuff, I would recommend The Atlantic. They have a really good climate additions newsletter that I often read, which is which is amazing. There's a lot of green architecture books out there, which really help you showcase how you can bring greenery into your home and really like, think about spaces to live in a different way. Harris, it has been awesome having you here today. If our listeners want to go and find out more about you, the Nature Impact, where can they find out more information? Yeah, so if you go to thenatureimpact.com, you'll find out a little bit more about our software solutions that help corporates and empower them to track and reduce their impact on nature. We are growing and we're hopefully going to get more advocates to support us on this mission. So if you have and you're passionate about this place, please reach out. I'd love to have a conversation on how you can support us on our journey. Great. That was Big Earth Energy. Thank you for joining us, Harris. And thank you to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another episode soon. 